Amen. Charles Spurgeon did not mince words when he talked about Psalm 22. I'm struck by how he described it. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight, he said. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. Those are strong words about a particular psalm of the 150. Why did Spurgeon speak this way about Psalm 22? In a way that describes approaching this psalm as approaching holy ground? What is it that he sees here? I think Spurgeon is using that very strong language to convey a point. This psalm very keenly depicts the suffering and death and deliverance of the king. For Spurgeon, there's something very holy and awe-striking here. In the very psalm itself, we hear that we should fear the Lord, praise the Lord, and stand in awe. Spurgeon's words about the psalm are a way of saying, yes, we ought to do that. We ought to come to this grand proclamation and rejoice over the goodness and holiness and stunning truth here. The gospel writers in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John allude to this psalm when they describe the events of the suffering and death of Jesus. We heard a myriad of those last week, didn't we? This is part two of two in uh, this psalm. We see in verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's on the lips of Jesus upon the cross. In verse seven here, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. We're told in the Gospels that those bystanders wagged their heads while Jesus was suffering. In verse eight, the enemies mock the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And there at the scene of the cross, in a very, in a very ironic, spiritually ironic setting, these mockers join together in the words of Psalm 22. And they say, he trusts in God, let him deliver him. In verse 15, the psalmist says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. A dryness of mouth that we might remember when the Lord Jesus says, I thirst. In verse 16, the psalmist says, they pierced my hands and feet. And in verse 18, they divide my garments among them and my clothing is cast for lots. uh, They are casting my clothing with lots. (laughs) And in these verses, the scene of the cross comes naturally to mind. In the first 21 verses of the psalm, we read about suffering and affliction. But verse 21 is not the end of the psalm. The psalmist is turning to God in his affliction. He's hoping for divine rescue and deliverance. It doesn't seem near, but here's what he knows. God not only can do it, He has done it in the past. He can trust the Lord's faithfulness for what He currently doesn't understand is happening. Marked by the opening question, why? In this psalm, what I want us to consider is that in verses 1-21, to the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus fulfills that opening section. But we know verse 21 is not the end. We've heard in our hearing this morning, verses 22-31, to And this depicts for us the deliverance of the king. Suffering and deliverance. Death and resurrection. The power of Psalm 22 is not just that Jesus quotes it upon the cross while he is suffering and dying. 
The power of Psalm 22 reaches beyond the moment of the cross that the psalmist, the suffering king, has hope in God that his suffering is not the end. But that his affliction will be followed by rescue from the very grave itself. David's life does not fully fulfill this psalm. David is writing words that reach beyond his own life. Some have described Psalm 22 as a kind of bank filled with water that is overflowing such a bank and going out the boundaries of David's own life, heading toward Calvary. To say that the words of this psalm overflow David's experiences and that that's by design. This psalm, by design, is meant to reach beyond the life of David into the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. How does God answer the prayer in Psalm 22 of his suffering king? Question. Answer by raising him from the dead. By raising him to everlasting glory and bodily life that the imperishable would clothe the perishable. That immortality would clothe the mortal life. So that when Jesus is raised from the dead, he is raised to everlasting bodily glory. In verses 22 to 26, what the psalmist is wanting us to do is praise God. Now, we have had experiences in our own lives that we could all share where we were not only overjoyed by something, we wanted to tell someone else so that they could join us in the joy. And we've had those experiences on the receiving end of such testimony where someone has shared with us something that has happened and we have rejoiced and praised the Lord with them. So here's what the psalmist is going to do. In verses 22 to 26, there's a call for praise to God because not only has he been delivered, he is their king. And as goes the king, so goes the people. The deliverance of the king will mean good for the people. His deliverance is favor and blessing to them. It is not without effect in their lives that their king is delivered. The deliverance of the king is great for them. And they join in praise to God at his call. In verses 22 to 26, the praise begins this way. A commitment from the psalmist. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll praise you. He's picturing in a corporate assembly, isn't he? He's surrounded by what he calls his brothers and people who are praising God in the congregation of his brothers, his brothers and sisters. These are not unbelieving Israelites that have gathered. These are the true offspring of Abraham, children of Abraham by faith. This is the congregation of his family, the family of God, and he's going to proclaim and tell of the name of God. And here the telling of the name of God would mean speaking about God in his mighty acts. What has the faithfulness of God been manifested in? What has the power of God now shown itself to have accomplished? So to tell of the name of God is to exalt what God has done in his perfect character and mighty deeds. He says, I've got to tell somebody. I've got to tell in the congregation the the name of God and praise God in the midst of it. Being in the midst of a congregation is definitely the desirable situation when we recall what he was in the midst of earlier in the psalm. And I'm talking about in verses 12 and 13. When these enemies, depicted in beastly ways, are like bulls and lions, 
surrounding him, overwhelming him, and seeking to devour him. How blessed it is to now be in the midst of his congregation. To be in the congregation surrounded by those who know God and love God. And he says, I'm going to tell what's happened. And I'm going to praise you. This psalm, this verse here in verse 22, is quoted in the book of Hebrews as applied to the Lord Jesus. And this is powerful to consider how the Old and New Testaments relate in this way. In the opening of the psalm that we saw last week, already the gospel writers are showing us the words of this psalm in the ministry and death of Jesus. But in Hebrews 2, the writer says in verse 9 that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that he endured. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he, by whom and for whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ is perfectly qualified as our Messiah. He is perfect for the job and occasion, which is what the word perfect means there. It doesn't mean to make something morally perfect that was blemished. Christ is without sin. It is here, however, exalting Christ as the founder, the establisher of our salvation, bringing sons and daughters to glory, tasting death on our behalf. That is the first section of Psalm 22. And in verse 11 of Hebrews 2, he tells us Jesus is not ashamed to call his people his brothers, his family, and to support the claim the Hebrews writer makes. That Jesus is not ashamed that we belong to him and his family. He cites Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Here you have the delivered king in Psalm 22, ready to bear testimony to the grace and work of the Lord who has rescued him from suffering and death. And that's more true for Christ than it even was of David. Though true for David to some degree, these words overcome and and uh, and fill outward and over the banks in the life of David to the cross. In Hebrews 2 and in verse 12, Psalm 22, verse 22, it's as if Jesus is the speaker here, as if he is saying, I'm going to tell what has happened. I want to make known the deliverance. And the resurrection encounters that took place post-empty tomb continued to be that earthly testimony of what God had done in His Son. In fact, when we proclaim the gospel and the good news of Christ, the power of the voice of Christ by His Spirit is still testifying to what God has done. Amen. The writer of Hebrews is interested in the suffering of Christ. And he's interested in the vindication of Christ. And the gospel writers in the book of Hebrews realize Psalm 22 has something to say to this. Psalm 22 is the suffering and deliverance of the king. Not only does he himself want to call uh, people to hear this testimony, he wants them to praise God with him. Look in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, Offspring of Israel or offspring of Jacob, since Jacob was renamed Israel, that's the idea. These offspring were promised in Genesis 12. Remember, there's a covenant with Abraham formed in Genesis 15. 
and those earlier Genesis 12 promises about offspring and children, ultimately this is about a spiritual descent. There would be offspring of Abraham, children of faith who fear the Lord. Even in the Old Testament, not all Israel was Israel. Paul recognizes in the New Covenant realities of the cross and good news of the gospel that just because someone was an ethnic Israelite, they might reject the Messiah given from the children of Abraham. In verse 23, he calls those who fear the Lord to praise him, which means how does he identify the offspring of Jacob? How does he designate the offspring of Israel? Those who fear and glorify the Lord. And those who fear and glorify the Lord are not Messiah rejectors. They're Messiah embracers. They're Christ submitters. They're Jesus' Lord confessors. That's who they are. And in verse 23, he says, all right, you fear the Lord out here? You trust it? Are you a child of Abraham by faith? Then you praise God for what he's done. Glorify him. Stand in awe of him. All of those phrases are piling together to say that our hearts should swell in adoration and praise unto God. We were made to be worshipers of the living God. We've been made for the glory of God. So when he calls us to fear God and to stand in awe of God, another way to say that is we are living out what we were made for and he's given us the greatest basis for it, the deliverance of the suffering king. It's as if the suffering king's deliverance means something good for the people. And that they can join in praise to God and glorify God because that deliverance in some way counts for them. So they join together. The reason for the call to worship and praise God in the assembly is explained in verse 24. And in verse 24, I think we're meant to recall the opening despairing question of the psalm. Do you remember last week in the opening of this Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Now, objectively, we know that doctrinally and theologically, the Lord being omnipresent is never actually absent. This is the, this is the feeling, the sense of the suffering psalmist. He needs rescue and longs for merciful deliverance. And here, it seems so far away. That's what he means by, why have you forsaken me and why are you so far from saving me? It's a picture of saving, rescuing power being far and not near. That's what it felt like. But he's praising God and he calls others to praise God because of verse 24. For he, God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. You see, he, he feared the suffering psalmist feared that God had. And in verse 24, he's proclaiming he hadn't. He hadn't despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one, the king. And he has not hidden his face from him. Because see, he, he feared that he did. He was concerned that in going through that suffering, the face of God was far from him. And he says, oh, it wasn't. He had not hidden his face, but he heard. And he was so afraid earlier in the psalm that he's crying out to God day and night, crying out to God that God is just not hearing. And he says here in verse 24, he had heard me. You see, he's learning 
the lesson of Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the very next psalm, isn't it, that we consider together next Sunday morning. The psalmist here is saying, I know. His face was not hidden from me. He did not abhor me. He did not despise me. He did not reject me. He's heard me. It reminds me perhaps of Hebrews 5. Is Hebrews 5, 7 alluding to this section of the psalm? Maybe. In Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, the writer says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And so Jesus' posture of heart to the Father and Jesus' life without sin and Jesus as the Son of the living God dying in our place, His prayers are heard. And how does the Father hear the prayer of the Son? And the answer is the Son rises from the dead. The writer says here, He has not despised me. He's not abhorred my affliction. And He's not hidden His face. He heard my cry. There's so much comfort in this. Because you may be going through things even this morning that you think to yourself, it seems like delivering mercy is so far away. Seems like the help I would want and the rescue I need, that it's not the timing I wish it was. And it can be tempting to take the words of this psalm and wonder if it's objectively true. Has God forsaken me? Has He turned His face from me? And I want you to hear the words of this psalmist who not only is it true for him, it's true for all the people of God that God has not forsaken us or turned from us. That even in the valley of the shadow of death, we proclaim He is with me. It might not always feel that way. But the psalmist realizes that what he feels in his suffering might not always ring with what is true according to the Scripture's teaching about God and His people in the world. God has heard the cries of His suffering King. And how will the Lord ultimately answer our unanswered prayers for deliverance should death come? And the answer for us will be the way He answers His beloved Son We will rise from the dead. The hope of resurrection will be the capstone to all of our pleas for deliverance. The Lord's timing is wise and perfect and you can trust Him. For we will rise in glory. Praise the Lord. This is why He says in verses 25 and 26, From you comes my praise. That's a shorthand way of saying the reason for my praise. We could could unpack this to say, from you comes the reason for my praise in the great congregation. So my praise is based on this kind of notion, this deliverance in the congregation. My praise in this great group of God-fearing people. He says, from you, your delivering hand is what came. That's the reason for the praise In the great congregation. Therefore my vows I will perform before those who fear him. There were times in the ancient world where you can read about 
vow-making and vow-keeping in the Old Testament. Especially in the books of Leviticus and Numbers, they, they treat this notion of making a vow. And sometimes a promise was made to the Lord that if he would grant deliverance, I would make this particular promise kept. I would fulfill this particular vow. And sometimes what these vows involved were sacrifices and offerings of peace and thanksgiving at the tabernacle and later the temple. It's probably what's in view here when he says, I will perform my vows before those who fear him. The tabernacle, the sanctuary, was a place for congregational joy and sacrifice and prayer and singing. The tabernacle and later the temple were these kinds of holy places. So when he says, I'm going to perform my vow, what I think he means is I'm going to gather where the people of God go and I'm going to bring my rightful offering of thanksgiving and I'm going to praise God and I'm going to tell of what he's done. I'm going to perform this vow in front of all those who fear God because they would be found there too. And the afflicted in verse 26 are going to eat and be satisfied because some offerings could be shared with others. Not only is this testimony to be shared, but the offering and sacrifice he gives in thanks to God is going to be shared. And other people are going to eat and they're going to be satisfied. And those who seek God shall praise the Lord. You almost have this fellowship table scene with the end of verse 26. May your hearts live forever. It's like he's, he's saying, everybody raise your glass. Here's a toast in the name of the risen Christ. May your hearts live forever. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Making this statement, those who seek him shall praise him, combines together that the worshipers of God are identified by the direction of their life. They are seekers after God. Not seeking God, trying to find him because they don't know him. They seek the God they know. They seek the God they've come to learn of in the scriptures. They seek the God and not the idols of the nations. They worship the living God. And this means that he, this writer, is in fellowship with those who seek God, who are living for the glory of God. What does seeking God involve? Learning about the Lord. Submitting your heart to God. Seeking to proclaim and tell of the wonders of God. These are ways in which our lives are marked by seeking. And in this case, seeking God also involves gathering with others who seek and fear God and praising God. I think that's one of the loveliest things about the Lord's Day, don't you think? That when we gather together, we do so not because there's no salvation apart from a Lord's Day gathering. We know that we have been raised in Christ Jesus, a union that is true for us as individuals through faith in Him. We gather together in obedience to the Lord, to seek the Lord together, and to pray together, and to proclaim His wonders, and to sing praises of, and, uh, and songs to glorify Him, because we are seeking God as those who fear the Lord. And so the psalmist says, and I think it's a prayer, may your hearts live forever. What else would we expect for those who seek after God and truly worship God? That their lives would be marked by everlasting life. May your hearts live forever. What an incredible statement. And it's not an overstatement. He is proclaiming what is true for all who are worshipers of the living God. We have life in Him. Praise the Lord. So in verses 22 through 26, we've seen reason for praise unto God. 
He's drawing himself to this congregation. And they are gathered together, picturing, I think, this meeting place like the tabernacle. And he's telling about the wonders of God and they're joining him in praise to God. But in verses 27 to 31, the scope is made clear now in a way that isn't as clear so far. How vast are we talking? We're talking about people gathering together in praise to God. Where's this really going? How far is this really going to carry? And in verses 27 to 31, the scope of praise to God is vast and global. And you say, well, you can't get everybody in the world gathered there at the tabernacle. That's not what David means, right? Indeed, this is not something fulfilled in the days of David. In fact, this longing... And proclamation that from the ends of the earth there will be people as children of Abraham gathering together to praise the Lord is part of what God promised Abraham would happen anyway. That through the children, the seed of Abraham, blessing would come to all the families of the earth. Just as there were some Abrahamic shadows and echoes then in our earlier verses. I think they're in this part of the psalm as well in verses 27 to 31. In verse 27, the scope of praise to God. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Remember and turn to the Lord is a way of responding to what has been proclaimed about God. Turning to the Lord whose name they have heard. Whose wonders they've heard testimony of. Whose worth has been exalted. And whose praise in all the earth has been proclaimed. What happens Among the ends of the earth, they remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. We reminded of uh, the scattering of nations in Genesis chapter 11. There was a tower of Babel, wasn't there? And rebellion at a particular location. And multiple nations and languages that follow that scene. And you have this dispersal that throughout the ends of the earth, there's not worship in the way there ought to be. There's idolatry and there's immorality that has permeated not just the hearts of people, but practices and worldviews throughout the countries and nations of the world. Verse 27 is envisioning something. Do you see it? It's a reversal of the tragic global scene where God who is worthy of worship from the nations is not worshipped as He ought to be. And here the ends of the earth... The families of the nations are praising God. It's picturing something that comes to pass in the person and work of Jesus Christ as the triumph of the gospel is proclaimed throughout the nations and they come to saving faith in Him. In verse 28, the reason for this is given. Why is it that the ends of the earth ought to do this? Why is it that praise unto God ought to be from every family and nation on the earth? In verse 28, here's why. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. In other words, God has universal jurisdiction. It's not as if God is a tribal deity. The ancient world was filled with tribal deities. A God of the storms and a God of the seas. And a God of trees and a God of the sun and a God of this and that. Things that were located and bound. And if you wanted this attentive uh, act, you needed to pray to whatever God was a part of that realm you were concerned with. That is not the God of the Scriptures. 
The living God who's created heaven and earth for his glory and whose skies proclaim his handiwork and whose word has gone forth to permeate the nations, to bring glory to God. This God reigns in all the earth and therefore is worthy of worship throughout all the earth because all the earth belongs to him. He rules over the nations. These last three verses in verses 29 through 31 talk not just about the scope of the earth. It gets a little more specific than just the vastness of it. We're talking about young and old. We're talking about rich and poor. We're talking about dead and living and those who've not yet been born. When we talk about the families of the earth, we're talking about all sorts of subsets that fall into this category. So here's an example in verse 29 of this of a, as a subset of the families of the earth. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. It, it means those who've been strengthened in their flesh by food. It, it, it means those who are prosperous and they look it. They're not malnourished. You can tell by the way that they look and live that they have abundance and abundance. Well, they shall eat and worship. And, and what about those who seem that they are at the edge of death? They are not considered the prospering. They, they look like they're heading into the dust. Well, before him shall bow all those who go to the dust. The one who could not keep himself alive. Well, that would be the opposite there of the prospering one. You have someone who physically and emotionally is wearing down and wearied by the lack and the malnourishment of the ancient world. The opposite of the first line in the verse. In other words, the rich and the poor. From a worldly perspective, those who look like they would have much and those who would have little. There will be people from both backgrounds coming to know the Lord. This was a fascinating reality in the New Testament church. Because in the new covenant gathering of the saints of Jesus Christ, you would have people who from a worldly perspective would not belong together. These would want to associate with these kinds. And these over here would want to associate with those who have what they have. And you would have those worldly categories determining associations, friendships, and futures. But then there's the miraculous existence of the church of Jesus Christ. And it is the most fascinating thing in the ancient world where you would have people from households in various backgrounds, genders and ages, and political standings gathering together to worship the living Christ who has saved them in his name. And it's not because anything they had from a worldly perspective would accomplish it. All of that had nothing to do with the mercy of God on their behalf. And here he says, it's coming, it's going to happen. Not only that, in verse 30, he says, posterity shall serve him. This is talking about what's to come, isn't it? Posterity, we're looking at those who are to come in the next generation. Posterity shall serve him. Well, how are they going to know the Lord? Well, we're going to tell them. That's how they're going to know. Look at the end of the verse. We don't have to imply it. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Well, there you have all the need, you, uh, all the justification biblically to disciple one another in the name of Christ. That we would be gathering and teaching, instructing and discipling, that we would proclaim the Lord to the coming generation. So that they would not be without a knowledge of God. That they would know of their being made in the image of God. And that in Adam there has been rebellion against God. And we've all been corrupted in a sinful nature. 
And that this God who has made us in his image has been merciful toward us by promising and prophesying a Savior who was declared to be the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago. And that this Son of the living God was without sin. And that he came as one truly God and truly man to go to a cross on which our sin was placed. And that in Christ Jesus, we have a faithful substitute whose work of atonement we now shout from the mountaintops. Posterity shall serve him because they come to hear of the Lord who saves. And one of the reasons they would want to worship the Lord is they hear about his mighty acts. The psalmist is definitely going to be already proclaiming what God has done. He's performing his vows at the tabernacle. He's wanting the gathered congregation of those who fear the Lord to hear what God has done. Because God has delivered him and rescued him. Well, friends, just think about from lesser to greater for a moment. If the psalmist could celebrate that deliverance... How much more in the good news of the gospel do we have the greatest basis of all for jubilant celebration unto the Lord and to tell of his mighty acts for the coming generation? Has he not done the greatest of all saving deeds by taking our sin and shame and putting it upon his son that his justice might be satisfied and that God the just would be satisfied to look on him and pardon me? We tell that. To the coming generation. When we do. God is gracious and faithful. People come to know the Lord. Posterity shall serve him. One of the most urgent things. And it's urgent because it never ceases to be needful. One of the most urgent and important things. That we are engaged in. As a congregational living uh, body of Christ. Is the speaking of God. To those coming after us. We tell of the Lord. To the coming generation. And then they. In verse 31. The, the last verse here is picking up on that coming generation. What are they going to do? Well you picture it as like a, a, a race. Where the baton continues to be passed. Right? Where age upon age. And generation after generation. And for 2,000 years and going. The Lord Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. Throughout the nations of the earth. And that this coming generation will then grow up. And they will proclaim. And it doesn't just say they will tell of the Lord. Like verse 30 did. It says they will proclaim his righteousness. And that's the same thing. To tell of the Lord and to proclaim his righteousness. Is a way of talking about his righteous acts that he's performed. And part of his righteous acts include his deliverance of his people. And they're going to shout that far and wide. They're going to proclaim it. It's not something to be quiet about. It's not something to be silent about. They want to proclaim it. They will come up and they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Why is it that we want to teach and anchor ourselves in the word of God? Not just for the sake of this generation... But for the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. The reason doctrinal faithfulness and adherence to the gospel and being clear and sound in who Christ is and what he has done. The reason that matters is because it doesn't just matter for us, but for those who are coming after us. That's not lost on the psalmist, is it? That's on his mind. He's thinking about how important it is. 
that even a people yet unborn, what are they going to proclaim? They're going to proclaim his righteousness, that he, God, has done it. He has done it. Well, what has he done? Well, for the psalmist, they're going to proclaim in this particular case, the deliverance and rescue of the suffering king. And we see how those waters overflow the life of David heading to the cross. And we think about on the cross, how similar it is that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. In John chapter 19, in his dying words, he proclaims the finished nature of his work. He might as well have said, I have done it. What is it that we proclaim then in the light of the gospel? We look at verses 22 to 31 and we realize the suffering king is delivered by God just as the pattern and expectation was. So that in this suffering king's deliverance, we can proclaim the righteousness of God who has satisfied his justice in his beloved son. And in such a covenant forming act, we are welcomed to the one who takes us behind the veil. We are welcome to the one who receives us and has borne all our sin and shame. We needed rescue from sin and we proclaim he has done it. We needed pardon from our guilt and we say he has done it. We needed righteousness counted to us that we do not naturally possess and we say he has done it. We needed grace that not only saves us but secures us and sustains us in everlasting life. And I proclaim to you this morning he has done it. He has done it. Praise God for his delivering, rescuing power and grace. Let's stand together as we pray.